from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast close to 19 people have already assassinated these are targeted assassinations and this is somewhat unusual because previously what we would see is that people would come and randomly fire at security personnel and then we will have casualties but this is different they are not using the ak47 that was there previously in the previous phase of militancy in kashmir what they do is this young teenage boys you know they they slink uh, very furtively and then they wait for the right time and then they ambush the, and they have a fixed target they don't fire randomly 13 of them from the muslim community but the problem is that they have reasons to kill them because some of them are either affiliated with security agencies so which makes you know quote unquote fair game for for militants to target them others are affiliated with political parties so again they are considered as a quote unquote fair game for for militants and and another category is suspected informers from the perspective of militants it's a quote unquote again a fair game but uh, minority members i mean most of these killings are really strange because they are teachers who have nothing to do with you know they are just just teaching or like rajni bala or or even the in the revenue department uh, mr rahul bhat the kashmiri pandit who was killed again he was a clerical position nothing to do with the security and anything there's nothing about them that should uh, you know that that would incur somebody's anger they are assimilated into the local culture local customs local traditions have a lot of local friends so and and their deaths actually result in anger locally so it's really strange and it also signals that militancy is becoming more indiscriminate and more randomized targets are being selected that shakir meer who's been reporting for ty plus on the situation in kashmir after multiple targeted killings this year as shakir said there have been 19 such killings this year in many cases security forces claim to have killed those involved but there's little clarity on why many of these targets were chosen which in turn is fueling fears among minorities like the kashmiri pandits and others who work with the state in today's episode i'm speaking with shakir and dr ankur datta at the south asian university about the impact these attacks are having in kashmir as well as on the pandit community settled there shakir says the absence of any political engagement in the state has bred resentment on the ground which in turn is fueling militancy He explains how this wave of militancy is very different from what's been seen in the past. He also explains how the government is attempting to protect minorities, especially the pandit community. Shakir starts by explaining the impact these killings are having in the region. The minority members, they feel increasingly insecure and they want to be relocated to safe spaces. That is the change uh, that has been seen on the ground. overall uh, i in in terms of um, the level of militancy this is not to the kind of level that you know that will create that impact on the ground because i think local people here have seen much much violence on a much larger scale the only thing that this has resulted into is that it has invited very very strict uh new mechanisms by the government police and paramilitary forces were eventually sort of not being received very well because sometimes we have people being subjected to frisking on the road we have seen scooters being confiscated because you know uh, forces believe that you know these scooters or two wheelers are you know they are they facilitate the transport of movement of of these militants these measures 
the more they are frequently enacted, the more anger it creates among the local community. As far as the minorities are concerned, of course, they are very scared. As I wrote, wrote in my story, you know, one of the person told me that whenever he sees somebody fishing out something from his pocket, he thinks that he's going to whip up pistol and fire him. These killings do produce some kind of tensions on the ground. But um, are there more restrictions? Is there any sense that the restrictions on people's movements, on what they can and can't do, has that changed? Especially, as you mentioned in your article, because of the fact that even a place like Srinagar, which was considered to be militancy-free, um, is now witnessing militant attacks. Uh, yeah, I think uh, in that respect, uh, we have seen those uh, restrictions. Some of those restrictions actually uh, intensify immediately after a big attack happens. But what is permanent and what is you know tangible and what can be seen is that the presence of the creeping militarization everywhere, the bunkers have appeared everywhere, the checkpoints are there everywhere and 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 you know it, it creates a sense that you know you are not living in a normal place there is this uh embankment the band along the jailim river where people used to visit in parks you know young couples were there they were strolling there or you know college students would be there but that entire stretch is now you can find military bunkers all across along that stretch commercial establishments have been told to manitarily install cctv cameras uh, new face recognition technology has been introduced in the recent years and more and more military is, is pouring in. Government has to ratchet up its own response and in, in process create more, more and more militarization, which is sort of breeding more resentment on the ground rather than easing it off. Could you talk about how what we've been seeing over the past two years, especially in terms of these killings, is very different from what we've seen in the past? the kind of militancy that we have been seeing since 2013 was that young people would go high up in the forest and they would take pictures in military gear and hold pistols and AK-47 and then upload these pictures on social media, identify themselves by name. There were no aliases. Uh, um, and, and they would say what their political ideology was. Well, they would invest in this, in, in building a profile of themselves and, and trying to enthuse youth so they were easily identifiable and also made it easier for government to know who was uh, joining and who wasn't. After 2019, this militancy is becoming more secretive again. There's a reason for this. Uh, the reason is that after, in the run-up to the abrogation of Article 370, uh, government enacted a more muscular policy against militants. Uh, it wanted to kill them as, as, as quickly as possible. It killed senior militants. They're very crucial, important commanders were killed. What that did eventually was that militancy was inherited by those young, uh, you know, very giddy ideologues of 16, 17, 18 years old who had no idea, who were not attuned to the political sensibilities or politics of the region in, in the manner in which their forerunners or predecessors were. So all they wanted was spectacles. And the best way to have a spectacle was kill people whose deaths would make a lot of noise, which is unarmed pundit civilians or, or these teachers. Also, one more thing which, which made it worse was government's use of, uh, very liberal use of UAP against every form of dissent in Kashmir. In response to which we have this new problem called hybrid militancy, where previously the people who had no record of militancy are now participating somewhere procuring or obtaining a gun and then committing a crime, as I said, they want the spectacles. That's why they are choosing these very sensitive targets. 
And that's why that's also the reason why they're choosing Srinagar to be more precise, because everything that happens in Srinagar creates more news than, than it happens anywhere else in Kashmir. You've also in your report spoken with members of the Pandit community and the fear <laughs> that is there since these killings began. Uh, hmm. How has the government responded to these concerns of the community? I think the government has been very, very insensitive. Firstly, they, they said their peaceful protests were fired upon. No tear gas was used on, their pro- on the protesters. And then they were unceremoniously locked out in their houses. Uh, I have pundit individuals who keep sending me WhatsApp videos on WhatsApp on how they were being locked up uh, and they were not being allowed to go out. Even when they want to buy groceries, it is the police who they are telling to buy it. So they aren't being allowed allowed to go out. And this is creating a problem. They, they haven't been to their colleges. They haven't been to their schools. They haven't been to their offices. They're just locked out in their yeah, at their homes. Uh, like I quoted one Sanjay Tiku, who is, who is the president of Kashmiri Pandit Sangar Samiti. Uh, again, he, his entire family is under so, you know, house arrest-like situation and he's not been going out. I spoke to him a month, several months ago and he was not uh, sort of a cage. And then he, he spoke with cogency and a lot of maturity. But now he's angry. I could sense that he has, his, it has taken a toll on his mental health. He's, he's a good friend of mine and I could see change in his behavior. I think there are 4,000 to 5,000 people, such people living in, as per the PM's package. So, uh, so if even in one, one person dies, it creates a huge uh, psychological impact. A lot of them ha- are going through uh, immense unprecedented mental trauma. They're just saying, allow us to leave. We'll go to Jammu. We'll not stay here, but let us leave. And the government... They don't want to be seen as, as, as someone under whose watch this exodus is happening. So rather than you know, trying to understand Pandit's concern, they are just uh, forcibly locking them inside these gated colonies, which is again creating a very uh, difficult situation for both the government as well as the Pandits who are living there. Have they received any sort of information on when they will be allowed out? It's still an evolving situation. I think recently government had a sort of a rash of meetings were there. So pundits would be relocated to, the, to those secure areas and their postings, they would be transferred and they would be posted in some in their offices, which are nearer to these secure areas. And also uh, on their way to offices, they would be given some security and uh, and government would also, what, what it describes as human intelligence, they would try to recruit some of people who will try to relay some kind of intelligence that would help uh, avert the kind of attacks that we have seen over the last few days. So this is the strategy that has worked out. So how will it, it will be implemented? It, it's yet to be seen. There are videos of Kashmiri pundits leaving they are being stopped by the police in Anantnag. Justice! 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 As Shakir said, the focus is presently on how to keep members of the Pandit community in Kashmir safe, even while increasing the presence of security. Members of the community have been protesting. They are seeking justice for the killings and to be allowed to leave Kashmir. Ankur Datta is an associate professor and chairperson of the sociology department at the South Asian University. 
He has extensively studied the displacement of the Pandit community from Kashmir as well as the efforts to rehabilitate them. He explains how random targeting of the Pandit community was used to spread fear even in the 1990s, much like today. He also explains why little has changed for the community despite the big promises made by the government and why it may be time to let the community decide how it should be rehabilitated. Ankur, um, civilians being killed in Kashmir by terrorists is hardly unusual and hasn't been for a while now. Could you explain yes. what's different about what we're seeing in the region currently? 1989-1990, if you, if you consider that as the start of the current conflict, even though there's a much deeper history of politics that, of course, takes us to that, the, what emerges very often is that the, the early 90s was seen as a period of significant kind of breakdown in law and order, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that the security apparatus was not in place in Jammu and Kashmir historically. But what one saw then in the first few years was a sense of a complete breakdown of law and order, which then resulted in changes in policies leading to a kind of hyper-militarization of place in the Kashmir Valley uh, specifically and in Jammu and Kashmir broadly as well. It is interesting that you, what you are seeing now is happening while there is a presence of this massive security apparatus. And so yet these, of course, killings are happening. There were killings in the valley earlier. Uh, I mean, if you can go back to the early 90s, you, you could have assassinations, targeted killings of, very, of different people. I mean, if, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of Kashmiri Muslims are also caught up in that. Um, and of course, subsequently, you also have you know, casualties of crossfire. Uh, and if you talk to other writers, observers and journalists and reporters and academics, they will also talk about, let's say, a violence uh, you know, prepared by, the, uh, by different agencies and stakeholders. What we are seeing the last month are several killings that have taken place, which uh, seem to include uh, very ordinary people uh, alongside the few uh, some of the people who have been assassinated, which includes some Kashmiri pandits or outsiders who are ostensibly either uh, Hindu or from outside JNK, but also then these policemen who've been assassinated are Muslim. I think the shock we are facing is that there was, uh, at least outside Jammu and Kashmir, there was a sense that there'd be greater control exerted and there'd be a diminishing of violence. Uh, and rather what one has seen in these last few days, or at least based on reportage, is a, is a kind of spike of particular individuals being killed. So while the early 90s was seen as a complete breakdown of law and order, um, there were brief periods in between when things seemed to be much more in control. And it was imagined maybe in the last few years that there was less violence uh, in that sense within areas occupied by large civilian populations. That image of safety has come, especially after the abolishing of Article 370, because it was seen as this moment which would change how the state even existed in a sense. Um, could you yeah. talk about what has changed or to what degree things have changed in Jammu and Kashmir since that special status has gone? Honestly, it's it's a bit difficult to answer that question uh, because I'm not sure how much of that change that is something that's actually on the ground or how much of the the change in terms of, you know, we were expecting Article 370, the, the, the kind of effective application of Article 370 leading to, you know, a reduction of violence or how much of it was actually imagined or a, project, or a projection. Um, because you still have a very large military presence there. Whether it's uh, about issues along the border of the LOC or even as internal security arrangements, 
So I'm actually not sure to what extent that can lead to a change in actual practice. My sense is that it's it's much more imagined. There's still much more potential uh, this employment and relief package. When we are talking about violence, peace, conflict, displacement, uh, exile, exodus, uh, you know, violence from militants, violence from the state, all of these things, we're still talking about something in which violence is very much part of the present. Uh, a lot of the language around our expectations, I mean, uh, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot, it's couched on this kind of sense that um, now we have peace. But actually what you have is continued violence. I don't think you ever had this. It's not like a war. You know, it's not like, you know, when the Second World War ha- took place, right? And you had the fall of Berlin, you know, uh, I mean, the war ended. I mean, there will be immediate suffering as well in the aftermath, but the war ended and now you can think about peace. I think here what's happening is that in some ways it might be that the same state of affairs actually has continued. It's not that militancy has ended. It's not that the Indian security establishment has demobilized. We're in the situation where we're trying to make sense of recent events that are calling upon new ways of thinking, but it's still very grave because the conflict is still ongoing. That's why it's very difficult to come with a a definitive assertion. Uh, But having said that, I think we were, I think outside JNK, regardless again of our political positions, I think there was too much being expected. When you have individuals being targeted, um, especially in this case, um, how does that change perceptions? If you were to argue in favor of the state, one argument would be that these are relatively smaller terror strikes. So how do you view this sort of individual targeting? What sort of impact does that have? For example, in 1990, uh, there will be, let's say, the you know, you, you hear the names of some Kashmiri pundits, for example, who were, who, were, who were assassinated. But what also took place was this breakdown in law and order, right? And that kind of, you know, persuades uh, or forces and compels people to think about leaving. Uh, in this case also, I think, well, I mean, there, again, this is speculation uh, to some extent. Uh, but if, you know, if we talk about this individual targeting, it is still reported in the news. The news carries over. Some of the people who were assassinated in 1990 were relatively prominent, if I'm not mistaken, like a magistrate or the director of Dutashan uh, Kashmir uh, or, you know, or this politician. And I remember very clearly this gentleman said that he left Kashmir when someone he knew, who was a very ordinary person, was killed, and his logic was, look, you know, a politician's a big person, I'm a nobody, but when a nobody also gets shot, then... So it can have that kind of effect. So I think it, it is, even if it's individual killings, uh, whether they're targeted or random, because you're also, A, you're in an insecure environment, you're in an environment marked by conflict, and you're also in, in an environment where news can travel. It, it will still affect you. But I think with the Kashmiri pundits, there's an added layer because you have that history from 1990. And I think that is something that plays in. Because, uh, see, one of the, the, interest, the curious things about being a Kashmiri pundit is that what you're looking at a population where um, they are now associated with one of the most drastic cases of internal displacement in contemporary South Asia, if you think about it. I mean, the vast majority of them did leave Kashmir. And I think what happens is as a result, to be a Kashmiri Pandit means you are marked by that history. 
but will giving the community greater security help i asked ankur datta whether having an armed policeman by the door can actually help the community feel more secure personally for me i'm not sure if uh, those are short term measures i think what needs to be asked is actually to ask who is actually returning there was a scheme that had come up a few years ago i i think this is the previous regime with a special package for kashmiri pundits for employment in state department offices in kashmir and you had a lot of people applying uh the sense i had it might be different now the sense i had was that you were looking at kashmiri pundits who had applied for this and a lot of them were people who perhaps lack the social cultural and educational capital to try and look for op- to you know to to find opportunities um further south whether it's you know delhi bombay or wherever so it is for people who are trying to look for an opportunity for some for some future what kind of futures do people imagine right and what kind of viable futures can be imagined and i think that is not something that is a, one can answer immediately for the kashmiri pundits when it comes to kashmir um and that's why it'd be interesting actually perhaps to talk talk more to them what where to the imagined a viable future and what constitutes that viable future um especially because clearly there's no end to conflict uh and i think that becomes uh an important point to keep in mind as we think through this and as we learn more so even if i park more guards in these colonies or um i think you had individuals who had special police protection you know i can keep doing that but in the end of the day it might make you physically more secure but does it give you a secure future uh do you feel secure uh or that you that potentially you're a target even if you are or no if you're no one what these incidents are making us think about when it comes to the kashmiri pundits is to again to ask for the question what constitutes a viable future for the kashmiri pundits given the prior history and what they're now facing and especially for sec- for sections of the kashmiri pundits who have applied for these government jobs because these are are applying for because it's an opportunity for survival and now when again the question of actual your life comes up what is survival then so i i that that's how i would see it it's more questions to think about rather as we assess with what's coming up but with the community itself one major factor especially since this government came to point 2014 has been that the kashmiri pandits will be relocated to their original homes what does this spike in violence and like you said uh, the randomness of it do for that promise several regimes have always talked about return and resettlement so even this employment package goes back to act the, the congress led upa regime not the nda and i think there's not sufficient engagement with the meanings of return uh receive return can work in an as actual practice as an idea and you are looking at people returning but who are not the same people in 1990 so you're looking at the people who are ostensibly returning they have that history of experience of 1991 two you have a generation that has grown up outside kashmir right when i started my research there were many who were children at the time and who who came into adulthood in jammu 
Now at this stage, after 32 years, you have a generation that's never even lived in Kashmir, right? Uh, so you're actually going to look at people returning, either marked by the context of their displacement or Kashmiri pundits who know the idea of Kashmir but have actually never really lived there. Secondly, are we thinking about viable futures? Kashmiri pundits have been returning in the past on visits, but does this return mean resettlement? And even if they resettled you, uh, and sometimes it could even be simply about the fact that, like, you know, um, you could be a Kashmiri pundit, but you might have the education, social, and cultural capital to do well professionally. I'm talking about that section. Your family may have left Srinagar. I mean, there are people I've encountered like this, whose families left Srinagar, but you are looking at well-to-do, educated, you know, guys who went and did an MBA and are working in a bank. So your profession, anyway, will take you beyond Jammu and Kashmir, right? You, 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 you know, you're going to be in Gurgaon or, you know, Bombay. So I think there's that puzzle too. I think one needs to see about what does return mean. See, in refugee studies, there was this thing that was very popular in the 70s called the refugee cycle. And the idea is that, you know, when you become a refugee, you are, you know, you become displaced and then you're in exile, you're stateless. And it's a cycle. So, and eventually you'll find some place. And, you know, when the circle turns full, you're no longer a refugee. Whether that means resettlement in some other country or whether that means you go back. And hence, there was a lot of interest at one time on the idea of resettlement because ostensibly resettlement will end the refugee cycle. Uh, I mean, the Kashmiri Pandits are internally displaced people. They're not legally refugees. But sometimes I get a sense that a lot of this talk about return, resettlement, follows that logic that everything will be solved once they go back to Kashmir. And I think that is something that is not being sufficiently unpacked, uh, either in media or in policy. And I don't think there's been a sufficient engagement with what this return means to Kashmiri Pandits. Like I remember this one chap uh, I met who, I mean, years ago, so... Um, who ran a photocopy business. He had this one little shed and you had two photocopy machines. And the interesting thing he said, I mean, the, because that conversation re return was constantly going back then. And there was always a sense, even in 1990, by the way, for the first few months of, you know, the displacement, they thought maybe in summer we'll head back and it just continued. Uh, but I remember being told very clearly that, look, return incurs costs because... It, it displacement was hard. Life in Jammu was difficult, but we are still, you know, saying that they have still more or less found some settlement in Jammu in the sense that you're observing everyday life. Uh, for this gentleman, it would have meant, you know, he had a small business, whatever it was. It was still two photocopy machines and, you know. So to go back means you'll have to back up your photocopiers and restart again from scratch. And restarting is not very easy. Uh, in that sense, in fact, this person spoke of returning as another kind of displacement. If their families moved to Delhi or Faridabad or wherever, that is what they are used to. doesn't mean they're not affected by that history. doesn't mean that they don't inherit that history. But to go back to Kashmir is actually a settlement. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.